Matthew, recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes the following. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Twice. In our text for this morning, twice in verses 28 and 29, Jesus uses the Greek word skandalizo, which is translated, if you look at your Bible, you see it twice, translated, causes you to sin. It appears once in verse 29, it appears once in verse 30. If your right eye, skandalizo, causes you to sin, and then in verse 30, if your right hand, skandalizo, causes you to sin. As you hear that word, you hear our English word there? Scandalous. Scandalous. You see, sin is always scandalous. In whatever form it comes in, in whatever manifestation it demonstrates itself in, sin is always scandalous. The word there, scandalizo, it carries the idea of entrapping or tripping up or causing to stumble. Uh, The word literally refers to a bait stick that holds a trap door open. You've seen it before. An unsuspecting critter walks into a trap, and he removes the bait from the stick, and the spring door shuts behind him. And there he is, trapped. Scandalizo. I want you to get the picture in your mind there. It's the same picture that Paul paints for us in Galatians 6.1 when he writes, Anyone who is caught in sin... Anyone who is caught in sin, we who are spiritual should help restore such a brother. We should view temptation, especially because the temptation to sin sexually is what is on Jesus' mind here, or to sin in any other way, like a baited trap. That's exactly what it is. Sin is a trap. It's a baited trap. James reminds us. He says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin is enticing. Sin is appealing. Sin is attractive. But always remember, sin is a trap. It's appealing. It's attractive. It's luring. It's seductive. It's sweet even to the taste for the moment. But it's always, always, always a trap. When you're lured into the trap by temptation and you take the bait, you get caught in the bondage of sin. And it's ironic, as a matter of fact, that the eye, which is supposed to keep us from stumbling, becomes the very scandalizo that causes one to stumble in our text for this morning. Your eye, the very member of your body that is supposed to warn you to watch out that danger is ahead, that you don't walk off the precipice, that you don't walk off the cliff, that you don't walk into the trap, is the very member of your body, oftentimes, that causes you to stumble. How are we to deal with temptation? That's what Jesus is really getting at here in the text. How are we to deal with temptation? 
told us last week that, that if a man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And, and I should say again, lest we forget that lusting or adulterous thoughts are not confined to the male gender. A woman can lust just like a male can lust. I would say that the, the temptation for the woman is to lust more to be lusted after. Different form, just as heinous. To lust to be lusted after, to long to be longed for. So how are we to deal with this temptation? Well, Jesus tells us in our text for this morning that we've got some radical surgery to be doing. But before we talk about that, let me ask you this question. Is it sin to be tempted? Is it sin to be tempted? Uh, No, it's not sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness to relinquish his lordship. To relinquish his lordship. Jesus was tempted in in the Garden of Gethsemane to forego the cross. Jesus was tempted while on the cross to show his deity by removing himself from the cross. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Clearly, to be tempted is not sin. But I will tell you this. The line between temptation and sin is oftentimes very subtle. The line between temptation and sin is oftentimes very, very subtle. How does Jesus teach us that we should deal with temptation? Well, look back at your Bible. If you are tempted, specifically in the realm of lustful thoughts, adulterous thoughts, but this principle applies to every manner of sin, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, Deal with it aggressively. Rip it out. Tear it out. Throw it away. It's better that you, that you go into heaven with one eye than to have all of your members thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Be radical. Throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What Jesus is essentially saying in our text this morning, and we said it all the way back in our study of Ephesians, is, friends, make war on sin. Make war on sin. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you five principles. Some of them I'll say a little more about. Some of them I'll say a little less about. But I want to give you five principles here that I think we, that we can clearly see are implied in the text. And principle number one is this. Sin is not a toy to be played with. It's an enemy to be killed. Sin is not a toy to be played with. Rather, it's an enemy to be killed. Now, before we go any further, it's very important that we note that Jesus is teaching with hyperbole here. Jesus is teaching by means of exaggeration. That's the figure of speech that he's using to gain our attention, to arrest our attention, that he might captivate an audience to hear his words. He's teaching with hyperbole. While Jesus is not speaking literally in verses 29 and 30, Jesus is most certainly speaking radically. He's not speaking literally, literally gouge your eye out, literally cut your arm off, but don't neglect the fact that he is most certainly speaking radically. 
These verses aren't suggesting that we should fight sexual sin by literally tearing out an eye or cutting off a hand. I am very confident, as you should be, that if we only had left eyes and we only had left hands, we would still be very capable of finding ways to sin. Why is that? Remember last week? Because we don't primarily have an eye problem and we don't primarily have a hand problem. We primarily have a heart problem. The problem resides right here. It's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Out of a man flows, and then he gives a whole list of evils. It comes from within. It comes from the heart. What these two verses are saying is that sexual purity in both action and in thought are massively important to God. So important that it's worth sacrificing otherwise good things if those otherwise good things have the ability to lead us into temptation and sin. What Jesus is really teaching here in our text is a ruthless self-denial. And friends, we don't like that. We don't like denying ourselves. We love pleasing ourselves. We love pleasuring ourselves. We love entertaining ourselves. We love satis- satisfying ourselves. We could go on and on and on. We don't like self denial. We don't like to deny ourselves, and neither do we like someone else to come along and deny us from anything. We don't like it. The theological term that Jesus is putting his finger on here is what the old dead guys used to refer to as the mortification of the flesh. Mortification just means putting to death. Putting to death the flesh. John Stott explains what it means to mortify our flesh when he says this. He says, if your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, then pluck out your eyes. In other words, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and that you had actually flung them away. And that you were actually blind so that you couldn't see what it was that would have tempted you had you seen it. In other words, live as if you were blind. I'll give you some practical ways that you can apply this here in a few minutes. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Not literal, but radical. Live as if you were blind. If your eye causes you to sin. Likewise, if it's your hand that tempts you to sin, then cut it off. Throw it away. That is, don't go, don't do, don't touch, don't pet. Live as if you had no hands if your hands tempt you to sin. Live as if you were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. Friends, anything with a capital A, anything that stands between us and Jesus must be radically amputated. Think about this. We have some medical professionals in the building this morning. But think about Gan Green for just a moment. When Gan Green starts to infect an area of a person's body, physicians don't treat it with Neosporin and a Band-Aid. Why is that? Because Neosporin and a Band-Aid is insufficient aid for, for gangrene. Gangrene is treated by cutting infection away. We've got to get in and cut it out. Otherwise, it continues to spread and it continues to infect. We must deal with our sin in the same radical way. I mean, if, if drastic measures are appropriate to treat the physical man, then drastic measures are certainly appropriate to treat the spiritual man. 
But we live in a passive culture. And passivity has crept into the local church, into local churches. Just like we don't like self-denial, we kind of like to take the middle road. We're oftentimes prone to be very apathetic when it comes to dealing with sin. But Jesus' counsel is to take extreme measures to pursue spiritual purity. We must deal radically and severely with our sin. We can't can't pamper it. We can't flirt with it. We can't nibble around the edges of it. We must hate it, crush it, and cut it out. Our generation treats sin so lightly. Sin, Sin today, it's thought of as being a deviation instead of a disease. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a kink in the chain of life. It's not a heart disease. We try and treat it instead of condemning it and repenting of it. Let me state that another way. Instead of killing sin, do you know what we try to do? We try to manage it. Oftentimes because we bow down at the, the idol of our appearance. We worship appearance, what other people think of us. And so we try to manage our sin instead of trying to kill our sin. Friends, sin cannot be managed. It must be killed. It must be put to death. Sooner or later, you can rest assured your sin will find you out. You will be exposed. And if you're not exposed here on this earth, there is coming a day, the day of days, when all sin will be brought to light. You can rest assured your sin will find you out. Billy Sunday once said, the reason so many Christians fall into sin is because they treat sin like a strawberry instead of a rattlesnake. Kind of, kind of nibble at it, and it's a little bit sweet instead of fleeing from it because we know it's poisonous and has the ability to inflict devastating wounds and destruction. You see, to go back to the illustration from last week, when we see the lion, we don't flee. I asked, how should, how should you view temptation when it comes? Well, you should view temptation just like you would, you, you would view the lion in the wild that you by chance encountered. I mean, you you wouldn't walk up to the lion and try to reach out and pet it, let alone try to cozy up to the kitty. But oftentimes that's what we do with our sin. We, We try and see how close we can get to it. I'll say more about that here in just a minute. And if it'll let us, we'll reach out and pet it. And if it'll let us, we'll sit down next to it and, and, and begin to, to put our arm around it. We, we cuddle up, we cozy up to the kitty. And then we wonder why in the world we get mauled. Well, the reason we get eaten alive is because we have too low a view of sin and too high a view of ourselves. The 17th century Puritan John Owen, which I would encourage you, gobble up anything you can read John Owen. Was he a perfect man? Absolutely not. Read discerningly like you would read anything else. But John Owen, John Owen had much to say about putting sin to death. Matter of fact, it was oftentimes said of Owen that he had more biblical wisdom in the tip of his pinky finger than most Christians have in their entire bodies. It's a nice epitaph. This is what Owen said. It's really a question. He said, do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be at it always while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. 
Now, we should note here that while Jesus pinpoints the eyes and the hands, Jesus very well could have included our feet. Oftentimes, our feet take us places that we should not go. He very well could have added our tongue, because oftentimes our tongue is used to flatter and to inflame lust. But the reason I think that Jesus specifically speaks about the eye and the hand is that these are the usual culprits when it comes to sexual sin. The eye and the hand. And so we must learn to discipline them. We must learn to bring them under control, or they'll control you. Let me give you four helpful verses here that will help you when you're dealing with putting sin to death. And I would encourage you to memorize these. Maybe you take one a week. Maybe you take one every uh, couple of weeks and you you memorize it. So over the next eight weeks, you memorize four verses here. A couple of them are a couple of verses long. But I would encourage you to commit these to memory. Be very helpful for you in the moment that you're trying to put sin to death. Number one, Romans 6.13. Romans 6.13, Paul writes, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instruments has the idea of a utensil or a tool or a vehicle. Don't don't present the members of your body as tools or vehicles or utensils for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Use your members as instruments for righteousness. Memorize Romans 6.13. How about Romans 13.14? One short sentence here. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. No provision for the flesh. If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile every time. And we're great justifiers when it comes to our sin. We're so quick to see it in others. We can point it out from a mile away. But we're so quick to let ourselves off the hook and justify our own sin away. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. You can think about it this way. You've you've got a lamp burning inside you, a lamp of desire. Don't bring oil anywhere near it or you'll have a fire. Okay? Colossians 3.5. Paul says, put to death. That's the word mortify. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. You see the reoccurring theme? And there are many, many other verses like this throughout God's word. Let me give you one more. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. Paul says, for this is the will of God for your sanctification. Whatever comes next, you don't have to pray about. When you're reading the New Testament and Paul tells us, this is the will of God for you, you don't need to pray and ask God, is this your will for me? You can go ahead and take that one to the bank. This is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion or not in lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Control. Do you have control over your body? If not, it'll control you. If you don't have control over your eyes, your eyes will control you. 
because they're connected to, they're hardwired to a sinful heart. You don't have control over your hands. You don't have control over your feet. They'll have control over you because they're connected, hardwired to a sinful heart. Friends, sin is not a toy to be played with. It's an enemy to be put to death. Let me give you principle number two here. If you want to avoid sin, avoid temptation. If you want to avoid sin, then avoid temptation. Let me ask you this question. Do you know you? Do you know you? Now let me ask you the follow-up question. Do you really know you? Let me assure you that Satan knows you. Remember back to Ephesians 4, 14? He's cunning, he's crafty, he's deceitful, he's a schemer, he's wily. Anybody ever watched Wily Coyote? There's a reason we call him that. Satan, he's deceitful. He knows what strings to pull. He knows what buttons to push. He knows the places that you are most tempted. He knows the times that you are most tempted. He knows the people who tempt you the most. He knows the justifications and the rationalizations that you make for your sin. Friends, don't let him outwit you. He knows you. Do you know you? Do you know where you are most tempted? The places, the times, the people, the situations, the circumstances. Do you know you? Do you know the propensity of your heart? You see, I think the reason that we don't know ourselves is because we do far too little studying of ourselves. That's one of the things that the Puritans, the 17th and 18th century guys and gals, were really good at. And a lot of their journals have survived. I would encourage you to read some of the journals of the Puritans. They knew themselves. They they knew their weaknesses. They knew their temptations. And so they could steer clear of sin. Friends, we must, we must know ourselves. Our enemy knows us. And he'll capitalize. He'll capitalize on your loneliness. He will exploit your unhappy marriage He'll dress up and flaunt the lie that the grass is greener on the other side in a myriad of different situations and circumstances. Friends, the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. Okay? But Satan will exploit all those things. And he'll tempt you. Just remember, it's a trap. It's a scandalizo. You'll get caught up in it. And you become a statistic. Don't become a casualty of war because you failed to be studious of your heart and your particular temptations. Remember, no temptation is seized except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll provide a way out, a way for you to stand up under it. Don't struggle alone. Ladies, have another lady who knows you inside and out. Men, have another man who knows you, who knows all your secrets. Have a person whom you let in between this place right here. Oftentimes, even in the church, we smile at one another and and we say things are going great and we will let relationships come this far. But what is between here and the heart is off limits. Who has access to this? Man, I would encourage you to have a man who knows you inside and out. And ladies, the same. Principle number two, if you want to avoid sin, avoid temptation. And you've got to know you to do it. Principle number three, don't try and see how close to sin 
you can get. Don't see how close to the line you can get without falling over it, without stepping over it. You see, there's something in us, and it's connected to our sinful nature, and and there's something in me, connected to my sinful nature, that oftentimes wants to see how close to the line we can get without stepping over it. For our 10th wedding anniversary, Jody and I went to the Grand Canyon, and we stood in awe as we took in the breathtaking views in every direction the eye could see. But there's something in me that wasn't content with the view from a safe distance. I wanted to crawl out on the precipice, and I wanted to see it from the ledge. I wanted to take it all in from the ledge. Unfortunately, we oftentimes treat sin the same way. We try to see how close to the line we can get without stepping over. Friends, it's not a display of spiritual strength to see how close to sin we can get and still resist. Spiritual strength or spiritual maturity is knowing where we're prone to temptation and resolving not even to go there. Spiritual maturity is knowing how prone we are to sin, knowing what our specific temptations are and resolving to never go there. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. How close can I get? That's the wrong question. A better question is, how far away can I stay? How far away can I stay? Let me ask you this question in kind of the same vein here. You ever said to yourself, boy, I sure was tempted, but I'm so thankful that I didn't give in to fill in the blank. Boy, I sure was tempted there, but I'm glad I didn't give in to fill in the blank. Friends, we must not be content with the mere fact that we did not act sinfully when tempted? A better, more searching question that drills down to the depths of our heart is this. Why did I even want to do it? Not, I'm so thankful that I was tempted and yet did not sin. The question is, why did I want to in the first place? You see, that gets down to the heart level. That exposes us. Those are heart-searching questions that we ought to be asking of ourselves. Principle number four, don't buy into the cute cultural lie, let go and let God. When it comes to sin, when it comes to putting sin to death, mortifying the flesh, making no provision for the flesh, do not buy into the cultural lie, let go and let God. It makes for very cute t-shirts, it makes for great bumper stickers, it makes for great Facebook memes and a whole lot of contemporary Christian music, but it's a lie from the pit of hell. Friends, hear me, hear me loud and hear me clear. Jesus isn't going to obey for you. Now, let me follow that up and say, in an ultimate sense, He has. In an ultimate sense, Jesus has obeyed for you. And if you ever question that, just look at the cross. Just look at his righteous life that is imputed to guilty sinners on the basis of faith and repentance. In an overarching sense, in an ultimate sense, Jesus has obeyed for you. But when it comes to the practical day-to-day pursuit of holiness, he's not going to obey for you. He'll give you all the grace you need to pursue holiness. You have his very pure and precious promises. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness in this world, in his word. But he's not going to obey for you. 
The pursuit of holiness is not a hands-off approach, friends. That's why I encourage you to read a copy of Jerry Bridges' The Discipline of Grace. There are two things that are operative in our growth in holiness. One is the grace of God. There is no pursuit of holiness apart from it. But secondly is discipline. Bridges likens it to the two wings of an airplane. You can't fly very long with a one-winged airplane. One wing is discipline. I discipline myself. I beat my body. I make it my slave. And the other wing is the grace of God which enables me. Both, Both must be operative. You see, when it comes to daily practical obedience, you won't find let go and let God anywhere in your Bible. But you'll find verses like 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize so that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That is an interesting word again. Self-control. Self-denial. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline Hupopiazzo, I discipline, carries the idea of wearing out or beating black and blue or treating severely or forcing into compliance. Paul says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. Friends, to put sin to death is an act of the will. It takes self-discipline. It takes self-control. It takes ruthless ruthless pursuit. War. God will supply all the grace you need, but you, by his grace, must crucify your flesh. You must put it to death. He's given you everything you need, but you've got to take those means of grace and put your sin to death. Paul said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through through deceitful desires. And put on the new self. It says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Boy, the mind, it's that battlefield, right? Finish this sentence. You do what you do because you think what you think. Yeah. Battlefield for your mind. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think about these things. You want to crucify the flesh? A whole lot of that starts right between your ears and in your heart. Right thinking produces right actions. Putting sin to death is an act of the will. Don't buy into the cultural lie that that I can just float through the Christian life and somehow grow in holiness. That's not the way God's designed it, friends. You must beat your body, discipline yourself, keep it under control. So Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, right? It says the grace of God has appeared. Well, the grace of God is a person, by the way. Jesus has appeared. And he teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who redeemed us of people for his very self that we might be zealous for good works. But the grace of God teaches us to say no and to live self-controlled, upright lives. 
Are you controlling yourself? Not just on the outside, but on the inside. Principle number five. We must have a do-whatever-it-takes mentality when we're making war on sin. We must have a do-whatever-it-takes mentality. There's a cost associated to dealing radically with your sin, friends. Losing a right hand or a right eye reveals that dealing with sin is costly. We must remove those things from our lives that tempt us, whether they're people or places or things. And it may cost you. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you your reputation. It may cost you loneliness. But rest assured, pursuing holiness will cost you. It will. It'll cost you. You see, it's easy to jump into the cultural stream and just float down. But it's a whole lot more difficult to jump into the cultural stream of this world and turn around to swim upstream, to to, to swim upriver. But that's what it will require if you want to pursue holiness. Remember, all the grace of God is given to you. There's a cost associated with dealing with sin radically. Think about the television you watch. And, And I would encourage you to even consider the networks that you have available to you at the push of a button. Not what networks do you watch, but what networks do you have available to you at the push of a button. And then just remember, you have all the hardware already in you to pursue every manner of sin at just the push of a button. Think about the internet. Think about the places that you frequent. Are they, are they places of moral failure for you? Think about this. What movies will you permit yourself to see? Let me ask you this question, and and I'm not trying to be pharisaical or legalistic here, but have you ever walked out of a movie? And if not, why not? You ever walked out of a movie and said, enough's enough? My holiness is more important than my entertainment. What about your relationships? Are they moving you more towards holiness or farther away from it? Single people, let me encourage you here. Let me get your eyeballs. Please, 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 I beg you, don't missionary date. Don't missionary date. Don't date a non-believer thinking that you're going to be the one to convert the lost person. Does it happen by God's grace? It does. Is it God's design and intention for you? It's not. It's a whole lot easier for someone to pull you into a swimming pool than it is for you to pull someone out, humanly speaking. Okay? Are your relationships moving you toward holiness or away from holiness? Let me give you this principle here. Again, I don't want to be legalistic in any way. Rules put on you by others is legalism. Rules put on you by you is wisdom. Rules put on you by others is legalism. Rules put on you by you is wisdom. Unless the rules put on you by others are directly contained in God's word, and then that's also wisdom, and it's also a great friend. There's pain associated with dealing radically with your sin. You know, we, we sometimes enjoy our sin in the moment. We must get rid of our sin and any feeling 
of enjoyment. Sanctification can be painful. We see imagery all throughout the Bible of pruning. Pruning is difficult. Pruning is oftentimes painful, but rest assured, it's meant to produce growth and holiness. And then there's consequences associated with dealing radically with our sin. Okay? There's a cost associated with dealing radically with our sin. There's pain associated with it, and there's consequences associated with it. I mean, dealing radically with your sin may affect your life in this world for the rest of your life. Some of you might remember the movie 127 Hours. The movie recounts the true story of mountaineer and adventurer Aaron Ralston, who while climbing down into the Blue John Canyon in Utah's Canyonlands National Park, slipped and fell, knocking a boulder loose that smashed his arm and entrapped him. Stuck, he desperately tried, crying out for help, but it didn't take long before he realized he was out there all alone. There's probably a sermon illustration somewhere in there. Over the next five days, Aaron examines his life and he considers his options. He tries to chip away at the boulder in an attempt to free himself and to keep himself warm during the chilling nights. He even rigged a pulley uh, to try to futilely lift the boulder off his arm. And when all else failed, Aaron was faced with an agonizing choice amputate his own arm and extricate himself or remain pinned in the canyon and die? What do you suppose he chose? You'll gladly take an arm off to live, which is what Jesus is saying here in the text. You know, our sin is destructive, friends. Look back at verse 30. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Remember, Jesus begins our text for this morning in verse 28. He's he's using hyperbole to make his point. He's, He's using exaggerative language here to make the point that sin is a destructive foe and that it must be dealt with decisively and quickly. So here's the question. If Jesus began, verse 28, using hyperbole, is he using a figure of speech here at the end of verse 30, or is Jesus now speaking literally when he says, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell? Well, here's my attempt at an answer. I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is both. Permit me to explain for just a moment here. For believers, for believers, I'm persuaded that Jesus is referring to the judgment seat of Christ here at the end of verse 30, when he says it is better, it's better for you to go into heaven, a spiritual amputee, than that your whole body be thrown or cast into hell. I think that Jesus is potentially referring to the judgment seat of Christ here. I mean, Paul wrote this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of you may receive what is due for what was done in the body. Interesting reference, if you connect that back to our text. Think about eyes and hands here, that each one will get what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. I don't think Jesus is primarily, for the believer here, speaking about being saved or being lost. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus is assuming that his hearers here are followers. I think he's assuming that his primary audience is already saved and are already citizens of that kingdom. And so I think the hell that Jesus speaks of, he speaks of it three times as a matter of fact. You can glance back at verse 22 and you see it again in verses 29 and 30. Refer for the believer not to eternal punishment, 
Though Jesus did clearly and decisively teach about the certainty, the certainty of eternal punishment many times elsewhere. But I think that what Jesus is speaking about here is that believers, believers, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will experience a supernatural fire that will be administered at the judgment seat of Christ and everything will be exposed for what it is. If we built with hay and stubble, it'll all be consumed. If we built with that which is precious, it will endure. Jesus here is fleshing out what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. See, it's only a matter of time, friends, before our work will be shown for what it really is, whether we plucked the eye out and cut the hand off or whether we gave into the desires of our flesh. Now, it's true that no, with a capital N, capital O, truly converted, blood-bought believer will ever be eternally lost that doesn't mean that the believer can't suffer loss in terms of reward. Jesus is warning his followers of the grave importance of demonstrating a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, for unbelievers, I think Jesus is warning against the certainty of eternal punishment. Remember in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and in doing so forfeit his very soul? At the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus will say, not everyone who says to me. As a matter of fact, there are some of those not everyone's here in our room this morning, but not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Friends, I hope we can't rest content thinking that if we haven't committed the act of murder or we haven't committed the act of adultery that we're doing well, Inside the cauldron of our hearts resides the vile and heinous disease called sin. Jesus' words in these verses are an encouragement for us to examine our actions, but also to examine our motives and our desires. Remember, it's not just, oh, I'm thankful I didn't give in to, but why did I even want to? That gets down to the heart. You see, God's word is meant to reflect our foulness back to us. It's meant to reflect our sin back to us. That's what James talks about in James chapter 1, right? Like the man who looks in the mirror and intently and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. But the law of, of the liberty of life, it reflects back our foulness to us. Let me close with one final thought this morning. One of the best ways to practically put sin to death in your life is to recall and to recall often the extravagant price that had to be paid in order for us to be delivered from the bondage of sin and death. You do that, friends? You recall in your heart and mind, and do you recall often the extravagant price that had to be paid to deliver you from the bondage of sin and death? You see, for the Christian, there should be no greater stimulus, no greater incentive to kill sin in our lives than to be reminded that Jesus endured the cross, he despised its shame, in order that we, the objects of his saving grace, might be delivered from the curse of sin and stand before him blameless and without fault. What better incentive is there to deal with our sin aggressively, to put sin to death, than to be reminded that Jesus Christ paid it all for me. Friends, if the love and sufferings of Christ meant anything to us, they'll lead us to agree with our brother Isaac Watts that love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. 